Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sounds of Hockey podcast. I'm your host, as always, Tyler Gerholt, and we will be recapping games two and three in the Stanley Cup final this episode. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break down the questions coming into game two and three and then address all the uh, problems and successes inside the game, as well as any kind of milestones, storylines, um, and then we're going to get a little bit into stats as well, so hopefully we don't fall asleep on that one. I know some people are more into numbers than others, but I will try to do the best I can at making it entertaining and still captivating everyone uh, with those numbers. So let's just get right into it. Well, actually, you know, I feel like I um, I didn't do justice for the Blues coming into uh, the last episode. I, I realized that I said I was going to do kind of a deep dive of both teams that have made it to the Stanley Cup final, and I kind of only did it for the Bruins, um, and it was not intentional. I just sidetracked myself. So let's just do that really quick. Uh, we'll only take about a few minutes, hopefully, trying to do that, and then we'll get into uh, games two and three. And look, I know I'm a Bruins fan, and I, I try to keep it as unbiased as I can, but I, you know, I'm also aware that I, I am biased. And um, I apologize for any St. Louis fans that may have listened to this and were robbed of, uh, of last episode where I kind of snubbed how St. Louis got here, because it's not a mistake, like I've said many times before, and it's honestly an incredible story. So for those of you who don't know, uh, if you have been listening to the podcast for at least this season, you know I picked the Blues to be one of the powerhouses coming out of the West. And throughout the season, um, like most, I was heavily deterred from picking them um, because they had a really bad season up until about January. So they were dead last. And I know this has been a, you know, a story that's been beaten to death or trodden to death if you have been on Twitter or you keep up with hockey news. They were dead last. And that was, I think, around Christmas or New Year's in the league. And they had a meteoric rise. And uh, I think they had the best second half in um, in the NHL of any other team aside from uh, maybe the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, but it was basically Tampa, St. Louis, and Boston that I believe had the three best second half um, stints of the season wherein they gathered more points than anyone. So they, uh, they match up with um, Winnipeg, and they actually made it to the third seed. They went from dead last in the league to the third seed in the um, in the Central Division, which is a decently good division. I, you know, it's got a couple really good teams that um, were kind of underperforming, like, well, Winnipeg and uh, Nashville. And, you know, when you, when you look at the two teams' paths to this cup, Winnipeg and Nashville were not having good years, honestly. I mean, they had... Uh, kind of ebbs and flows of good years, but it was nothing like what we saw the year before when these teams faced off and it was an absolute juggernaut of teams going against each other. It was, um, honestly, it was pretty lackluster for both teams. And St. Louis, who had been good for, you know, several months and was playing every game like it was life or death, because for a lot of the time, it was life or death in terms of getting into the playoffs. And, um, you know, they come into to Winnipeg, and I pick St. Louis. Um, I pick St. Louis in six. I didn't think the Jets had it. And sure enough, I was right. Uh, you know, that's more of a guess than anything with hockey because, you know, you can turn it on anytime. And sometimes teams that are not hot in the regular season get really hot in the playoffs, like Columbus. Um, so St. Louis just dominates. And it's it's pretty much in every category. It's 
defensively, it's offensively, and it's goaltending. I mean, Binnington was so good in that series, and um, Hellebuck kind of, well, really, I can't even put it on Hellebuck. It was the whole team. I mean, the defense was beaten up. The forward group was lackluster at best. Uh, I believe they're missing one or two of their main guys for a couple of the games, too. But either way, I mean, St. Louis just brought it, and they, they ended up taking that series 4-2. to two. And it was kind of a weird, um, like, I think St. Louis went up. Oh, let me let me recap. It's been a while since I've looked at this series. Yeah, that's right. So um, what I was going to say, and I just double-checked it to make sure it's right, is that uh, the away teams won both games. So St. Louis came into Winnipeg in games 1 and 2, won both the games 2-1 and 4-3. And then the Jets kind of woke back up um, and stole game 3 and 4 in St. Louis. And then, um, I mean, you can't really say too little too late at that point because they tied up the series, but it kind of seemed like it was still too little too late. And St. Louis ended up winning the next two games, one at home and then one in Winnipeg. Um, So, I mean... It's kind of a fluky series where, you know, St. Louis takes the first two and then Winnipeg gets the next two and maybe Winnipeg just let off the gas a little bit thinking, okay, we have this. and Or St. Louis just was like, no, we're not doing this and ramped it up. But either way, they take the uh, the cake 6-2, or I'm sorry, 4-2 uh, to lead. And in games three, or uh, I'm sorry, in games five and six, they win 3-2 in both games. So Winnipeg is out. And then Dallas beats Nashville, which I also picked to happen, I think, in seven games. So I was wrong on the games there. Uh, But Dallas and St. Louis go head-to-head. I got to say, I was definitely more in favor of St. Louis winning this matchup because St. Louis just has a better forward group, in my opinion. Dallas may have the better defense, um, which I don't even know if that's true at this point because it was kind of Ben Bishop who was keeping them safe. But... You know, Dallas's defense did a good job of keeping St. Louis's offense to the perimeter, but I think it just kind of came down to, you know, you can only hold off so many players and so many shots if you can't get the puck out of your own zone, which St. Louis has been incredible at. They've probably been the best team in these playoffs at hemming you into your own zone, um, which is what we're seeing in the final as well. But that's essentially what it came down to. The final game, between uh, St. Louis and Dallas was Game 7, and it went to overtime, no, double overtime, sorry, it went to double overtime, and Ben Bishop stopped like 57 shots, and eventually Patrick Maroon gets the, you know, the hometown hero game winner in St. Louis, which, um, you know, we, we've all heard about, I've talked about that before, John Hamm hugs him, and they go on to um, play the Sharks, and the uh, Western Conference Final. But before we, I mean, we've already touched on the Sharks and the and the Blues, so I'm not really going to get into that series. But I do want to touch a little bit more on the Dallas and, and St. Louis series because what surprised me most about this was honestly Dallas's um, ability to come back and win games. I mean, it was not like there weren't a ton of high-scoring games, if I remember correctly. It was, it was pretty low-scoring, you know, 3-2 games, something like that. But what surprised me was they seemed to get the right goals at the right time and you know I wasn't really expecting Dallas to be able to respond like that because Rupe Hintz was kind of the the name that came out that really in my opinion saved their offense because they really only had that one top line I mean they had it and you know I I get mad at people for saying this about the Bruins because it's it's not true Um, 
It was certainly true last year, but Dallas really only had the one line. They had some contributors on the third and fourth line and, you know, second line, but really it was like Matt Zuccarello and the top line. It wasn't really much of anyone else, and I know that there are obviously people on that team that had goals, but in terms of consistent offense, it wasn't really there. Um, and so Rupe Hintz comes into the scene and is, you know, pretty much their perfect second-line center they've been needing. And just from that, I mean, they take St. Louis to seven. So pretty, uh, it was a pretty good uh, series from both sides. I'm glad it went to double overtime in Game 7. Um, as much as I hate to see that happen with my own team, of course, when you don't have vested interest in the games and the series, it's always more fun to see Game 7, double overtime, or just overtime hockey in general in the playoffs. Okay, so there's a redemption tour for the Blues. They've made it this far by basically grinding down their opponents and being able to uh, beat them along the boards. That's what they're best at, and hem them into their own zones. And, um, you know, I think some questions coming into Game 2 for the Bruins were um, how they're going to handle that. I mean, Game 1 was kind of a, a lopsided possession you know, after the first, um, where the Bruins just dominated in the second and third period. But in terms of five-on-five five play, the Blues have been kind of dominating. And maybe not on the on the score sheet, but in terms of possession, in terms of chances against, uh, I'll read some stats later on, but they've been doing a really good job at kind of controlling the play. Uh, the Bruins have just been much better at uh, converting on their chances and really making St. Louis pay for any mistakes they make, whether it's five on five, whether it's penalty kill, whether it's power play, any of those. I mean, they're dangerous in all three areas, um, or I'm sorry, in all three types of play. And it's, it's, you know, it's hard for any team to adjust to. Uh, I would say St. Louis probably has the best chance of adapting. It just, you know, they have to actually learn how to, how to adapt to it. Other questions coming into uh, Game 2, for me anyway, uh, I know we've talked at various points in the season or postseason about Bergeron being injured, but man, I mean, he there's something wrong. You know, I know they're never going to tell, and, you know, Martian had a comment about it after Game 3, but coming into Game 2, I was worried about Marchand and Bergeron, because Marchand had that wrist, you know, he said it wasn't an injury, he was fine, but in that scrum, I think Clifton hit him, and you know, hit his wrist or something, or a puck hit his wrist, and he was shaking his wrist, and he was visibly in pain, according to all the reporters and the analysts who were, you know, keeping an eye on that game. And you've noticed Marchand has been passing a lot more. I mean, he, he's a good playmaker, but there have been blatantly obvious times where he should have shot the puck from where he was, and he'll pass it. And I don't know if that's just overthinking, but the top line does that, uh, particularly Pasternak and Marchand are, you know, known for overthinking and passing when they should really shoot, trying to make that extra cute play and make it extra fancy. Um, but you got to wonder what they're dealing with, especially Bergeron. Um, didn't have a lot of time in game one played, and maybe that's just due to usage. Uh, maybe they're trying to keep him. I, I don't know. I'm not really sure why, but in the Stanley Cup final, the only reason I can think for keeping a key player like that off the ice and under, I think he had like 16 minutes in game one, um, is due to injury. That would be my only real thing that I could think of in terms of reasoning for that. The other question, I know that um, the power play struck in game one, but it was one for five, which, you know, it compared to how lethal that Bruins power play has been, was pretty, you know, 
uh, pretty weak. And so there was a question on that in terms of rust and then the puck movement as well. Really wasn't crisp in that first period, um, but it got better as you know the, the game went on. Now, my question coming into game two is can they maintain those possession metrics because St. Louis, like we've said, is a very hard physical team. They are known for forecheck. They are known for interrupting plays along the boards, keeping your hand into your own zone. And I was curious to see how St. Louis responded. Uh, and, you know, they, they did. Game two was pretty much the exact opposite way that game one went for the Bruins. The Bruins were solid in period one, not so much in period two and three. Uh, now, before we get into the actual gameplay, my questions coming in for the Blues was, after that game one stomping, um, can the Blues address the hybrid style that the I'm sorry, that the Bruins play with, with the speed, the skill, and the physicality, because we saw in the Columbus series, they're not afraid to mix it up with physical play, and this is talking about the Bruins. They're not afraid to mix it up with physical play, but what they kind of do is they go to you into being too physical, and then they either draw a penalty, or they're able to slip away from you with speed, and then, you know, they have great passing and great scoring. So, can the Blues address that, and how will they address that? Mainly the speed on that, because they are not a fast team. They have faced faster teams, but in my opinion, uh, the Sharks were a good fast team. They were not as crisp on passing, and they did not take shots um, from a lot of high-danger chances. A lot of their shots come from the point and kind of rely on being redirected or you know hitting off the board and getting rebounds, which is not how the Bruins typically play. They like to get down low, they like to cycle the puck down low, and they like to pass a lot and get your goalie guessing left to right. And then once the D are kind of mixed up and kind of puck watching, that's when they that's when they um that's when they pounce. Now I will say the Blues did a great job at keeping the top six shut down in terms of offense in game one, even if it didn't look like it so much. It might have been a lot of Bennington too. Uh, so my question was, can they keep the top the top six of the Bruins shut down? Uh, and if so, are they going to be sacrificing any offense to do so, or will they be able to maintain the offense kind of like that Shen line did in game one? Uh, because they really took advantage of, in my opinion, a hurt Bergeron and possibly a hurt Marchand, but they did a great job at basically dangling the pants off the top line of the Bruins, which is not something you see very often, and full credit to the top line of that Blues um, team because I've noticed uh, a pattern now that we've gone three games. They like to do a pump fake, uh, to kind of get the D guessing which way they're going to go. And then once the D go one way, the Blues forwards go the other, and they have an immediate path to Rask, and it's usually very close in, probably 10, 15 feet away, high danger chance, and it's just basically them and the goalie. So while the Blues players uh, forwards might not be fast, they're very good at eluding uh, the defenders and kind of making the defenders bite before they shoot. And that's really what we've been seeing. The goals that have been coming from the Blues have been those kind of goals where they uh, they fake out the, the defenders by going one way, then shooting the other. And then also a lot of deflections and weird deflections too. So let's get into uh, the play of game two. First goal is by Charlie Coyle on the power play. Comes from DeBrusque and I believe Pasternak. Uh, you know, Coyle has been... Such a good player for the Bruins during this playoff run. He is not tied with um, the goal or the goal-scored lead for the Bruins, but he has eight. And Pasternak and Marchand also have eight. Bergeron is the only player that has more with nine with his recent tally in Game 3. 
but he's been good at both ends of the ice. He has points. He's a big body who can defend. Um, and I know there's a lot made of that whole, you know, big body BS, but there is something, there is a truth to, you know, playoff hockey, whether it's, you know, whether it should be there or not. The big bodies that can play physically and can play both ways, I mean, that is what you want in the playoffs. If they're fast, that's even better. But most of the time, when they're big like that, they're not going to be super fast. But as long as they're good with the puck, you know, that's that's what you want. And I know this has been like a, a subject that's also been beaten to death in terms of the Bruins pickups. But let's face it, at the time, when the Bruins got Charlie Coyle and Marcus Johansson, there were very few people um, that were high on this acquire or on this... Um, what would you call it, on this pickup, rather, because they gave up Ryan Donato, who, for all of his defensive failures, was a very, very good offensive player when he had the puck. But the problem is he's only good in certain uses. He's kind of a power play specialist. He's not good at maintaining possession of the puck. He's good in strides along. Basically, if he has a clear shot to the goal and if he's not being impeded by another player... He's good, but other than that, really not that great. And I made a big deal of him being traded because I thought he had a lot of um, upside. And when I saw Charlie Coyle coming back, I was like, well, I mean, this guy's not really known for that much. He's a good defensive player, but, you know, he doesn't, I mean, even then it wasn't that much. But, you know, it might have just been usage. Maybe he's just having a run right now. But either way, I mean, it's been a good pickup. And, you know, I probably won't, you know, be the last um, person to mention this. And it probably won't be the last time I do mention that this is a good pickup. And so is Johansson. But, I mean, hell, I, I can't say we would be here if we still had Ryan Donato. I mean, Charlie Coyle has been that big of a difference for us. He's got eight goals. And I think him and Johansson combined have 26 points in the playoffs this year. Which is, you know, that's pretty fucking good. So, uh, Bruins go up one nothing early in the game. St. Louis responds. Uh, it's a goal from Edmondson, I believe. And it looked like Pat Maroon got the deflection, but what actually happened was it deflected off of Matt Grizzlick's back and top shelf into the goal. So there's been a strange amount of goals off of defenders um, into the puck on the Bruin side, which is bizarre because you don't really see that that often, and there's been three so far. And that's through game three. I know we're still talking about game two, but through three games, um, well, actually, I don't even remember if there was one in game one. There might have been, hell. But there's been a deflection off of Grizzlick this game, and it comes from Edmonton. Pat Maroon is in front of the net, kind of providing the screen, and it's now tied up 1-1. Oh, I'm sorry, Robert Bertuzzo, not, not Edmonton. It was Robert Bertuzzo's goal. And that came about halfway through the first period. And then about 45 seconds later, Joachim Nordstrom, who's also been really good in the last two series for the Bruins especially, uh, just outplays uh, Bennington in front, puts it five-hole on the backhand, and just like that, the Bruins are back up 2-1. And this fourth line continues to be an absolute monster for the Bruins. Uh, once we get through this game and the next game, I'll run through uh, the numbers I was talking about, and you'll see just how dominant this fourth line has been. I know people uh, don't like to hear that the fourth line has been the best line, but it truly has been the best line, and it's been outplaying any line on, um, on the Blues. I mean, 
it, in terms of numbers, they have been better than every single line on the Blues. Okay, and speaking of good lines for the Blues, even though it's not really what I said, but you get the point. Um, a few minutes later, Shen's line uh, pots another. And this is due to a bad pinch. If you watch the play, the Shen line is entering the zone for the Bruins, so they're entering the offensive zone. And Charlie McAvoy decides to try to make a pinch on Chara's side for some reason, which I'm not really sure um, why he did that. Now, I'm not, you know, an NHL defenseman. But typically, you would think that if one player, I mean, both him and Chara are in position. They are fine. McAvoy comes over to Chara's side, and Chara's in position. So maybe he's trying to help out Chara because Vladimir Tarasenko has been, uh, quite frankly, a nightmare for Zdeno Chara due to his elusive skating, and his puck handling skills. Um, but he comes over, makes a pinch. Vladimir Tarasenko is able to get around him. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. It wasn't McAvoy. It was, um, McAvoy was way back. It was Marchand. Marchand tries to make a pinch, even though he's kind of uh, too far behind the play to begin with. So it's, it's a two-on-one with Chara. Um, and it's not, it's not pretty. I mean... I think any Bruins fan that sees Chara on a two-on-one like that, where he's the defending player, is pretty much thinking this has a good chance of going into the back of the net. Even if it's not Chara, it has a good chance. But specifically with Chara, even though I think we've been a little too hard on him, I think he's done a decent job in the playoffs, and he's also been facing the best lines in the playoffs. Um, But I think we all saw this coming, and when... Uh, basically what happens is Vladimir Tarasenko ends up getting the puck past Chara. Um, so uh, Tarasenko gets the puck from Schwartz, who carries it into the zone, and shoots it off of Rask. Rebound comes out, and Tarasenko's right there. Dangles around Rask. Rask makes one really good save against Tarasenko's forehand. Makes another great save against a backhand, I believe, or maybe it was a second attempt at a forehand. And then... Chara is a little out of position, to be completely honest. I know it's not really on him because it's a two-on-one. and he, He's defended his guy, who is Schwartz, basically. Um, but, I mean, if, if Chara is two feet to the left, that puck doesn't go in. And I know, again, it's hard to pin this all on, two, on um, not Tuka, sorry, on Chara because he is the only person back. But, man, if he, if he stops a couple feet, and maybe he's trying not to screen Rask, but... If he stops a couple feet to the left, man, that puck doesn't go in. Because on the third chance, I mean, Rask makes two incredible saves on high-danger chances and is just too spread out at this point after the second save, and he cannot raise his arm or his leg high enough to stop Tarasenko's goal um, because Tarasenko does put a lot of lift on it to get it over Rask. And just like that, it's tied 2-2, and that's pretty much the only other offense you're going to see from the Bruins at this point. There were some... Uh, scrums, of course, there were some good chances, but for the most part, the Bruins seemed like they were playing like they were two goals ahead. I mean, it was mostly defensive play, and it really wasn't good defensive play. Rask kept them in this for a lot of the game. Uh, Quite frankly, the Bruins let the Blues have their way. I mean, there was a lot of bad turnovers in their own zone, which has been a problem already, even without the Blues being so dominant in uh, in their zone or in their offensive zone which, again, is what has gotten the Blues this far. Um, but the Bruins, I mean, a lot of stupid you know, drop passes, no-look no passes to no one. 
and a lot of waiting around for someone else to get the puck. And again, the Blues are not a fast team, but they're good at, when they get in that zone, they are very good at keeping it away from you or knocking it off if you have it. So quite frankly, the Bruins are lucky to make it to overtime. Once it gets to overtime, there's zero possession again. I think all the Bruins fans were hoping to just pull this out of their ass and have them come out a different team in, uh, in overtime. And right before overtime, uh, Bergeron and Pasternak both have great chances in front of Bennington. And, you know, as much as I have kind of criticized Bennington for allowing goals that shouldn't have happened, uh, he's been really good at basically once a couple goals get in, he doesn't let any others through. Like He makes those key saves after um, a couple goals have come in, but at key moments. So basically keeps the Blues in the game after a point. Oh, and quickly, you know, I didn't, I wanted to touch on this a little earlier, but kind of got lost in um, in the game. In the first period of game two, Matt Grizzlick is hit extremely awkwardly by Oscar Sundquist um, right on the nameplate. And you know what? This is one of those sayings where you got to stop and smell the roses. You can't just, and by that, I mean, uh, that's probably the wrong saying. Basically, you can't be biased for your team at this point. If if your team makes a bad hit, and I'm going to keep preaching this, if your team makes a bad hit, it's a bad hit. And you know what? I made a mistake in the last podcast, um, and it wasn't with a hit. It was with a penalty where David Backus, I said, got hit in the face uh, with a cross check. He didn't. And you know what? He sold it really well. The only angle I saw looked like he had been hit in the face, like without a doubt. And it turns out he embellished. Um, and so we're going to get into David Backus a little bit later in this game. But the hit that I want to talk about, again, is Matt Grizzlick being hit by Oscar Sundquist from behind, straight in the numbers, um, and to the head. Really, really, really bad hit. And, you know, Sundquist was the person that was targeted by Tom Wilson and Tom Wilson got that 20-game suspension. So while I don't think Sunquist is a dirty player necessarily, I do think there is something to be said for being in the heat of the moment and for, you know, maybe not wanting to take a player out, but wanting to cause some physical damage um, to a player because that hit was unnecessary. You didn't need to do it like that. You've seen players before when they have their, their back or their, um, their numbers exposed like that against the boards. You see players that are smart, come in and kind of lock them in. They put their hands on either side, or maybe they, they hit them a little bit and try to hold them a little bit there. That's what you're supposed to do in that situation. That way, you can still get possession of the puck. You can hold the defender off and allow your team to cycle the puck up or into wherever they want to in the, in the offensive zone. But that hit was complete BS. That was unnecessary. You took a player out. I mean, he had to be it was bad. If you guys saw the hit, he immediately grabs his head. He falls backwards. He can't stand on his own, has to be carried off the ice by two or three of his teammates and the trainer, and then ends up going to uh, the hospital. And there's been no update other than he, he's not traveling with the team to St. Louis. So to me, that means he's out. I mean, he looked bad. It was not a good scene. Um, you know, I know I have a vested interest in this team and in this player because I root for that team. Um, with something like that, man, and I would be okay with this with any player, if you lay a hit like that, I think you should get more than one game. And it's not because, again, I, I want to have some distinct advantage over the team that's playing my team in the cup final. Um, but I think that if you take a player out like that and you cause that kind of damage, 
that that needs to be like really disciplined. That that shouldn't be something that's just a slap on the wrist. Which one game I know it might seem like a lot for the player, but if that's all you get, I mean, why not run another player? And I'm not saying that this is going to be Craig Berube's or um, or the Blues incentive. But, you know, it did look a little bit like that in certain parts of game two. They ran Rask three fucking times. Three. And maybe one of those was helped a little bit. But all of those cases, there was one that was completely unimpeded as a player. Like, uh, Perron hits Rask. And whether, it, you know, it's not hard. But at the same time, like, it's not a fucking penalty. Uh, whether the refs missed it or not. Well, I guess if they saw it, it would be a penalty. But you know what I mean. It's it's not called as a penalty. He gets in Rask's face. You know, Blay runs fucking Rask too. He didn't even have the puck. Like, there's... You can't fucking do that. Because, again, I mean, Grizzik gets suspended. Uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, Sunquist gets suspended. We didn't find that out, of course, until, you know, uh, late into the next day, I think. But, I mean, when does it stop? When when can we stop worrying about these hits? Because, like, you know, I don't want to see any player leave the game like that. That was a horrific sight. And whether it's Chara hitting someone high, which has been a, a huge thing of what-ifs and what-aboutisms, which is fucking stupid. I mean, you can't justify one hit because another player lays a stupid hit that's similar. They're both fucking dumb. And I'll get to the Chara hit in a little bit, but... You know, people saying that Bacchus deserves a fucking hit to the head by, um, was it Blay? I don't even fucking remember who hit him. But saying that he deserves a hit to the head because he suckered the, the refs into a penalty. No, he fucking doesn't. Stop being an ignorant fuck. I don't care how much you like your team. It's not good to hit players in the head. And for anyone complaining about that Chara hit, if you watch that and watch it and watch it and watch it, the only part that touches that guy's head is his hand. His contact is elbows or uh, forearms against shoulder and side. There's no head contact. He hits his head as a result of the hit, but it's not a violent hit to the head like David Backus's was. And yeah, say it's a fucking bias, say whatever you want. Any sane person that watches these two will say they are similar, but in terms of location of hit, there's no similarity. Charas is to the body, and when Baxter gets hit, it's to the fucking head. Now, I also said that the cross-check to the face happened, and it didn't. Um, I got a better angle look. I got a few angle looks at this. So I am 100% positive saying that Bacchus got hit in the face. Okay, and with all that said, and all my podium speaking done, uh, let's move to overtime again, where the Blues, just to recap, dominate possession. The Bruins don't have the puck for a single second in overtime. And sure enough, uh, can't keep the Blues out of our own zone. We draw a penalty for a trip. And on the delayed penalty, uh, Carl Gunnarsson from the point who hit the post at the very end of the third period. And honestly, I thought it went in. I think it was two minutes left. Uh, Carl Gunnarsson rips one from the blue line. And it gets past Rask as a screen. He never sees it. Clean goal. Good win. Uh, definite heartbreak for Bruins fans. But you know what? The better team won that game. And sure enough, the Blues were the better team. Okay, now, for Game 3, questions coming in for the Bruins was, uh, first of all, Grizzlick. He's out. Who comes in? Is it going to be Moore? Is it going to be Camfer? There's also some talk of Vakaninen coming in, which I don't think anyone thought was a good idea. The kids played, I think, one NHL game or a couple 
um, NHL games, or I don't even remember if they were preseason. They might have been preseason. The most likely candidate is Moore because he plays the left side and Grizz is a left side defenseman. Another question for the Bruins is the pump fake problems that the Blues are deking the Bruins defenders with. Can they finally stop that? Can they kind of just keep the player on his edge? Maybe not jump from side to side. I understand they want to keep everyone in terms of uh, limiting where they go, but maybe if you're going to do that, limit them to the outside rather than the inside. Other questions is, can they win the board battles? And will they stop puck watching? Um, because honestly, you can't really win the board battles. It's, it's kind of like what we've been seeing all season long, or all postseason long. If you try to beat the team that's known for something at their own game, you're probably going to lose because of that. So, can they avoid the board battles is a better question. And when they're about to, can they make crisp passes to get it out of their own zone? And can they stop puck watching when the Blues have it in their own zone? Because um, honestly, when they haven't, when they haven't hemmed into their own zone five on five, it looks like a Blues power play. Second question, or the last question for me was, um, Biddington made some great stops in the second game, especially after the Bruins went up two nothing. Can they solve Bennington? Can they find a way to beat Bennington during those key moments where he has been making those key saves? Questions for the Blues, which I'm calling Blues Cues. And that's uh, not a patent, but maybe I should. Uh, is Sunquist suspension? When we were waiting for it, was how long? Even though we were pretty sure it was just going to be one game, um, who enters to fill that hole? And sure enough, enters Zach Sanford, um, who had a key assist and good play on one of the Blues' um, goals in Game Three. Special teams was a big question for me on the Blues. They've allowed a power play goal in every game. Even if the blue, or even if the, they've been better at keeping the Bruins to a smaller percentage, they have allowed a power play goal in every game so far. And can their power play convert and basically take down a notch from the Bruins' penalty kill, which has been, um, I think, into this game it was 19 for 19, which was pretty ridiculous. More questions. Can the Blues maintain a shutdown role on the Bruins' top six, which they have done effectively through the first two games, um, can they stop taking too many penalties? They've been playing a very hard-nosed and honestly a little dirty, which is what I expect. That's not even necessarily uh, an insult. That's kind of what you see. You saw a lot of that with the Ducks. You saw a lot of that with um, the Kings as well. Heavy, physical, and a little bit dirty. Um, but, you know, I think the refs are kind of not taking anyone's bullshit. They've made some soft calls on both sides. Please stop ref-blaming. I'm going to say that every fucking podcast. Please stop ref blaming. You can do it for any team, any side, any game. Stop it. Also, can the Blues solve Rask? And I know it's kind of a weird question to say, but in game two, there was a deflection off a defender. Didn't really solve Rask. Now, the Rask, the, the solution to Rask has been put a shitload of bodies in front of him and deflect the puck. That's the only way that teams have been able to beat him. It's, it's actually crazy how good he's been. Uh, we'll get to his stats in a little bit too. Now in this game, we're not necessarily going to do a play-by-play -play of goals because there were a lot. Uh, we're basically going to recap who had good nights, uh, nice goals, whatever. So uh, Krug, at the end of the game, if you have not watched the game, uh, I don't know why you're listening to this, but it was 7-2 final for the Bruins. There was one empty netter, so uh, you want to take that away, still 6-2. Krug scores four points, most by an NHL Bruin. Um, well, ever, actually. Bobby Orr never 
never scored four points in a Stanley Cup final game. So he actually owns that sole spot. And before you jump on me for saying that, no, this is not a comparison to Orr. No, this is not putting Orr in any kind of, or I'm sorry, Krug in any kind of category with Orr. It's just saying this dude is incredible on the power play. It is why he has been the power play quarterback for the Bruins. And he is a huge part of the Bruins offense, especially on the power play. He finished the night with one goal and three assists. Now, I was doing a little more research and trying to see who else may have scored uh, four points in the Stanley Cup final in one game. The answer is, there's a lot of people. But in recent um, history, it's been Kuznetsov in last year's Cup final with Vegas. And that was against Vegas when the Capitals won the Cup. And then in 2010, it was the Blackhawks. And it was Dustin Bufflin, who's no longer with them. He's with the Jets. But, um, I mean, they also won the Cup. That's not to say that, you know, this is a stat that says you're going to win the Cup. It's just kind of a, a strange coincidence I thought I would mention. And then after that, I think it's in the 90s, the last time that happened. So it's not very rare. Good accomplishment for Krug. And uh, he now owns a record in NHL history. Oh, I'm sorry, in the Bruins history anyway. And also NHL history. I also wanted to congratulate Ivan Barbashev, who, uh, you know, he's been a little invisible in the series. I think he's been one of the hardest working Blues, uh, and he finally got, you know, a little bit of redemption here as he scored a goal. Uh, it did go off, again, strange deflections, right? That's how you got to beat Rask, and of course it went off another Bruins defenseman, and that's not to play down the goal. You get a goal, doesn't matter how you get it, it's a goal. Um, anyway, he, he gets fed the goal, or he gets fed the puck. And this was the key play I was talking about from uh, Zach Sanford earlier. He is able to defend off Chara, who's also a you know pretty big body if you if you don't know who he is for some reason, and he's able to uh, basically push him off of himself, and then Sanford passes it to Barbashev, who shoots it, and it does a double deflection off of both of Charlie McAvoy's skates and into the net. So Rask was key to the position. Uh, he oh, I'm sorry, he was square to the position, but. Double deflection off of the skates, and it's into the puck. Again, doesn't matter how the goal gets scored, and that's not a knock against St. Louis. That is how you have to score against Rask. It's very, very rarely is it going to be a very pretty goal against Rask, and that's not to sound like a homer, but it's just how good he's been in these playoffs. It's similar to how Bobrovsky was um, up until game four of the Bruins series. And uh, the Bruins light up Bennington, five goals on 19 shots. It's the first time he's been pulled. And after, um, after the second period, he admits that he, like, basically put his arm out more to nudge Rask because, you know, he's probably pissed off. But you know, it's kind of fucking dumb, man. Like, even if you're rattled like that, don't show people you'll pi that you're pissed off. It, it kind of shows that they have a way to get at you, you know, even if it's not a normal thing. Bennington may, you know, come back in game four and pitch a shutout for all I know. But, um, you know... Throughout the time he was with the the Bruins in Providence, which wasn't a very you know extensive stay, you could see he had a very very bad temper, as well as with um, was it his ECHL team? I, I don't remember. He had an incident where basically he ended up slashing another goalie or another player and got thrown out of a game. So I mean he's very temperamental as goalies usually are, but for me that was kind of like a oh man they kind of have a they kind of have your number at this point maybe not. Maybe not, but I'm just saying with goalies like that, they're very temperamental and their their mentality has to be perfect or else they tend to let it slip. 
and you just got to hope if you're a blue, if you're a blues fan you got to hope this is not a slipping moment or a crack in the shield that has been Jordan Bennington and speaking of frustration I mean there's got to be a lot of frustration from the blues players and fans because this game was a little closer than it seemed uh, the blues I think had three pipes in terms of uh, and by pipes I mean three posts in which they rung with the puck so three potential goals if they had been a couple inches uh, more in with their shot now that happened to the Bruins in I think game two uh, but again it doesn't count if it doesn't go in so lots of frustration there I'm sure O'Reilly had a really good chance to sink one so did Maroon um, and you know Schwartz has been not invisible. I don't want to say invisible because he's had his chances, but I think overall the Bruins have done a very good job of shutting him down. I think that's part of why we saw the rest of that line getting goals because I think they're a little too focused on Schwartz coming in, who has been a nightmare. Uh, I think he has 12 or 13 goals. He was a big problem for the Sharks. And again, you know, between Bergeron maybe being injured or just having very off games after 11 days off and how lethal Schwartz has been as a goal scorer, I think they were kind of maybe focusing too much on him and forgetting about Shannon Tarasenko, who are also good snipers. And between the posts, the missed shots, the bad penalties, and there were bad penalties, whether you know there was one that was bad in terms of being called and it shouldn't have been or not, there were bad penalties taken by the Blues, and you can't just say, oh, it was the refs, this wasn't called. No, the penalties they have been taking have been bad penalties. Just like some of the penalties that the Bruins have been taking have been bad penalties. It's not just a matter of it's a good penalty when you agree with it or it's a bad penalty because the ref blew it. No, that's not how it works. So between all that and then Rask being Rask, it's been very frustrating for the Blues, at least in this game, to get a few potted. I mean, they've only... I know it's been three games. There's been one time where they scored more than two goals on him and it took an overtime and honestly it took an overtime and a really really crappy effort from the Bruins and again that's not to downplay the St. Louis Blues but you look at that game and you look at the other games and you say one of these is not like the other and speaking of one of these is not like the other uh, I wouldn't say there's a huge disparity between Rask and Bennington when they're on their game but there has I mean, there's there's been a, a line drawn in terms of, you know, the goalies. And I don't want to get down on Bennington. He's a young kid. He's really, really good. And I've, I've given him praise earlier in episodes. Um, but there does seem to be a definitive line there. And, again, it's early in the series, you know, three games. It's not even halfway. Well, it's kind of halfway through, I guess, if you, if you count it. Uh, I mean, if it's going six or seven, seven, it's, you know, half a game from being halfway through. So you've seen a little bit of a difference in the goaltending. It's not been a wash. Um, Rask has been, I know that everyone says Bennington is amazing after a loss. Well, you know what? Rask has been amazing no matter what. And I think that's really what people are forgetting. Whether he loses or wins a game, he's always good in the next game. Uh, he had that one game where the Blues had 20 shots and there were two goals. And he had a 900 save percentage. And that's been his lowest save percentage in, I think, eight or nine games. And honestly, it's probably because he wasn't tested that much. He had a couple, um, he had one Russ goal and one, you know, there, there were good goals. Again, not trying to downplay anything, but after those two goals, there wasn't much else that got generated. Um, so you can't really fault him for that either. So I think there is a bit of recency bias going against Rask and that Bennington has been very good after losses. That's not a doubt. I'm not doubting that at all. 
but I am saying that I would rather have a consistent goalie every game than one who's just really good after losses and kind of average to sub-average um, when his team wins a game or following the game where his team wins a game. And we've said it before. I mean, Rask is just, he seems like he's in the zone. He seems like nothing's going to get to him. He's matured. And, you know, it takes a long, it can take a long time for goalies to mature. And some of them never do. Uh, you know, it's not, it's a very weird position. You don't have normal people that play as goaltender for some reason. And, you know, I don't know why, but it seems like they all have their own voodoo and their own characters. And that's just how it is. So I'll just uh, briefly touch in a couple things that um, were noteworthy in this game. A, John Moore slotted in. I was worried about that, and that was for Grizzlick. Uh, he had a really good game. You know, I was a little worried about him because he's had some pretty abysmal games throughout his um, tenure with the Bruins, which has only been this year. But he came to play this game, and it seemed like he really had a good effect. And I was a little worried. I almost wanted to slot in Camphrey, even though it's his offside. But I do agree with... Bruce Cassidy, especially after that performance, that John Moore should get the nod if that's how he's going to play, and especially if that's his natural side. Uh, the Bruins' power play was absolutely fuego this game. Went four for four. Um, four shots, four goals. I mean, just lethal. Taking the chances where they should have been, which is exactly what Bruce Cassidy has been preaching. Go for the higher danger chances than, rather than just trying to pepper the shots. Uh, and then the other thing is Perico ends up getting a shot on the power play, which uh, came from that Chara hit to um, Gunnarsson, which I was just defending, saying it wasn't a bad hit. I'm going to maintain that. I know that I was just saying you can't ref blame, and I'm not ref blaming. You know, they're going to get it wrong every once in a while, uh, and it's going to happen. The goal happened, whatever. Not a big deal. you got to move past it. There's been plenty of goals that have screwed over both teams, or any team in the playoffs, you got to play through it. Even if you fully disagree with it, there's nothing you can do about it. It's spilled milk. It's not going to go back. It happened. So uh, Pareko gets a shot from the point. It's going well wide, like probably six feet wide. Hits off of Brandon Carlo's leg, pops up, and just over Rask. And sure enough, the Blues have scored a power play goal, fluky as it may be. They break the Bruins' 19, um, 19 straight penalty kill. And uh, they get on the board. They're 5-2 now with 15 minutes left in the period. Anyway, the game ends 7-2. But strangely enough, that's both goals for the Blues off of a Bruins defender. Um, and I don't know if that's maybe just positioning or just weird luck, which plays a lot into this game for any team. I mean, luck is a huge part of this game. Now, after the game, uh, Barube was, I mean, He's probably pissed off. I would be pissed off. I think anyone would be pissed off with that result, right? Um, what I don't like is Brube ref blaming. And, you know, that kind of influences a lot of people, or it can anyway. They, um, you know, he said they got a lot of calls wrong, which maybe they did. And, you know, I think that applies for both sides. But to say that that's, I mean, the, the power play went four for four. You got to kill something, right? It's the same thing with the Sharks and... Uh, Vegas. You got to kill something. You can't allow four goals on a power play or four goals and four power plays, especially when it's four shots. You, I'm sorry, that's inexcusable. You can't just say bad calls. I didn't agree with the calls, blah, 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 blah. It was four shots, man. Four shots. Anyway, him saying we were the least penalized team in the league coming into the series. I don't agree with all the calls. You know what? If your team is playing like shit cans in terms of how they're going to be hitting and the physicality, look, you got to own it okay 
you got to own it. There have been some really bad hits by the Blues. There's been some really stupid plays by the Blues. There's been some really bad hits by the Bruins and really stupid plays by the Bruins. Get over it. You lost 7-2, okay? It's not like, you know, the power play was a huge contributor because the Bruins are that good. Maybe get your penalty kill a little better. Maybe don't take stupid penalties. Hmm? That, that sounds like a good idea, right? Can't, can't hurt. Maybe tell your fucking players to stop running Tuka Rask. Maybe that's a good idea. Also, um, Bruins' power play is second only to the New York Islanders in terms of best uh, postseason power plays. So the Dynasty Islanders in the season of 80-81, and this is when the cup or when the team went on to win four straight cups and appeared in five straight finals and lost the fifth to, I believe, the Oilers. Um, they were clicking at 37.8%. The Bruins are 35.9%. Behind them is, strangely enough, the next year Islanders in 81-82 at 29.9. And then before that, number four, the Maple Leafs back in 93-94 with 29.7%. So you could say this is a pretty damn good power play. It is literally a historically good power play. So maybe stop giving them power plays and they won't beat your ass on the power play. Also, a lot of the power plays the Bruins score are off the rush. They get into the zone and within seven seconds, that's how they score. That's how the last, I don't know, I think eight goals have been scored on the power play according to the point hockey. Uh, another small note before we get to um, some more stats. Bergeron ties Phil Esposito for uh, second on most postseason points in Bruins history. Only person above him is Ray Bork with 161. Don't know if Bergeron's going to get past that. I would guess not. He's uh, 34, I believe, so he's getting up there in age. Anyway, just a nice little thing to see. McAvoy took a shot to the knee um, at the end of the game, and according to Bruce Cassidy, he said he's fine, but again, who knows? It's the playoffs. Tukaras ties Jerry Cheevers for the most playoff road wins with 22 in Bruins history. Sean Corrali scores another game-winning goal, which would be the eventual game-winner anyway when they were up 3-0. And then Rask's playoff um, stats so far are nothing less than incredible. Uh, 20 games, he's got a 9.39 save percentage, 1.91 goals against average, which again is more of a team stat, and a 14.3 goals saved above average, meaning he has saved... 14.3 more goals than an average goalie would have in his position, which is absolutely nuts. Now, some good news for the Blues. Uh, I was talking about their 5-on-5 five -five domination, and according to at Bruins underscore stats, which is a great um, account to follow if you are following either side of this, because they do provide um, unbiased numbers, at least, for the series. Okay, so from him, or her, I'm not really sure if it's a guy or a girl, honestly. From Bruins stats. Top three Bruins lines on ice for one goal for and four goals against in five-on-five five play. All these stats are five-on-five five play, by the way. Uh, the top line of Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand, 10-4 to four in offensive to defensive zone face-offs, meaning they get started in the offensive zone more often than not because they are a, uh, for as good as they have been normally defensively, they are a good and the best offensive line the Bruins have normally. Uh, so 10 to 4 offensive zone to defensive zone faceoffs, 0 to 3 goals against, meaning they have not scored any goals 5 on 5 and have been scored on three times against 5 on 5. 8 to 9 scoring chances, and this is Bruins with 8, St. Louis with 9. Uh, 2 to 3 high danger chances, 
And again, that's when they're facing off against the Shen line, which is the top line for the Blues. So not the greatest if you're a Bruins fan, and uh, good news for the Blues fans. Now the second line of Krejci, uh, DeBrusque, and Bacchus, and Bacchus has not been very good, honestly. Uh, that whole second line hasn't been very good in the, in the final. Uh, DeBrusque has actually had a couple assists, so I guess you could say that, but uh, second line is 15-1 to 1 offensive to defensive zone face-offs, meaning, again, they get started even more in the offensive zone than the top line does. Uh, no goals for either side, so it's a wash. Five to eight scoring chances, eight for St. Louis, five for the Bruins. Zero to three high danger chances, zero for the Bruins, three for the Blues. And that is when they're matched up against the O'Reilly line, who has been doing a great job shutting them down. Uh, now, the O'Reilly line hasn't scored anything against them either five on five, but they've kind of meshed together and just canceled each other out. Which, honestly, when you look at the O'Reilly line, that's probably coming off ahead. I mean... Uh, Perron hasn't been good. O'Reilly has been the best player on that line by far. Um, but when you're shutting down people like DeBrusque and Krejci, that's probably as good as you're going to get. Third line has been a little bit better, uh, but still not great. So 12 to 5 offensive zone to defensive zone faceoffs, 1 to 1 in goals, so it's a wash there. Now they do have the advantage in chances um, 12 to 9 scoring chances. 12 being the Bruins, and then 6-4 to four high danger chances, 6 being the Bruins. Now, this is what I was talking about when I was saying the fourth line is absolutely dominant, okay? So the fourth line, which is the least offensive line normally in a, in a team, 2-15 to 15 offensive zone to defensive zone face-offs, meaning they get started in their own end, uh, protecting against goals against more than any line on this team. That's understandable. It's the fourth line. They've been a great job. Or they've done a great job at shutting down the other team's offense all season. He was a crazy thing. When you started in the offensive zone, you would think that whatever line has started there more than the others would get more goals. That has been completely ass backwards. So all three of the top lines, or the first, second, and third line, have had many more chances in the offensive zone to score five on five. And only one of them has. And that's been the third line. The fourth line has been started more in their own zone and do such a good job at defending and carrying the puck out. They have four goals, four, and zero goals against at five on five. They're eight to 11 in scoring chances, so the opposition gets more scoring chances, but in terms of high danger chances, the fourth line is seven to four. So Bruins get seven chances or high danger chances, Blues get four. So that fourth line has been an absolute shredder against the Blues. Now, there's been, I mean, it's, it's been pretty much the same line, line matching, meaning one goes against one, two against, uh, two against two, three against three, four against four. So the fourth line has been shredding their fourth line, and the Bruins' fourth line, rather, has been shredding their fourth line, but they've been doing a good job against pretty much anyone they're put out against. And you hear it all the time, it's not necessarily your top guns that will win you the series, it's the bottom six. You have to have a good bottom six, or else you're going to get overrun by deeper teams. The Bruins have proven they are a very deep team. The Blues have proven they're a very deep team. So, questions going into Game 4. Can the Blues slow down the power play? That is going to be a huge determining factor in this series. As we said, coming into the series, the special teams, even if people mainly, mainly focus on 5-on-5, five five, the special teams are just as important. They are a big part of the game. You essentially are playing a man down or a man up. So that's a huge deal. You're either going to be 
at a much higher risk of being scored against or a much higher risk of scoring four on one of those special teams. It is a big deal. Uh, the question I would have for the Bruins is, can they keep this up? Can they keep the four check to a dull roar or to a acceptable point where they can kind of uh, force themselves out of their own zones? Are we going to see more of game two where they couldn't get anything? Or are we going to see more of game one and three where it seemed like uh, the Blues were really the ones struggling, trying to get anything going? And when they did, Rask was able to stop them if they got past the defense. And my other question to kind of both teams is, are the top guns going to get going? I know we've seen Tarasenko, we've seen Shen, uh, we've seen the top line on the power play, but just in the last game, really. Are we going to see the same with game four, where kind of both top sixes are canceled out and it's a battle of the bottom? Or are we going to see a full tilted war where both teams' top six activate or are able to activate and shut down the other? All of these are huge components that are going to matter, of course. And, of course, if your top guns aren't going, someone has to be. And if they're not, it's going to be a problem. And then, of course, how does Bennington respond in Game 4? Does he actually have a crack in his, in his shield, or is he able to come back and be an elite, def- or elite goaltender in Game 4 and possibly throughout the rest of the series? We're going to see. It's going to be an exciting series. I still have the Bruins, of course, as I think any Bruins fan would. Um, I do think they're the better team, but again, the better team doesn't always win. So that's it for this one, guys. Um, Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Tyler X Gerholt, or you can email the show at the Sounds of Hockey podcast. We are available, I'm sorry, the Sounds of Hockey podcast at yahoo.com. That might be important. We're available anywhere you can find um, any kind of podcast. So um, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, etc., If you feel the need to write a review, please write a review. I would hope it's a good review, uh, but I do appreciate honesty. If you feel the need to share, please do. It'll help us uh, get the show a little bit off the ground. And hopefully I'll see you guys after game four. If not, I'll see you guys after game five.